Let me begin tonight by sharing a story about a godly man who you likely don't know. I know his work has inspired me in the past, and, and likely it has inspired you as well. Edward Mote was born in 1797. He was not brought up in a godly home, and he did not have the advantage of being exposed to Scripture early in his life. In fact, his parents managed a pub in London and often neglected young Edward, who spent most of his Sundays playing on the streets of London. When asked about his theological upbringing, he was quoted as saying, So ignorant was I that I did not even know there was a God. Eventually, Mote did become exposed to the Word of God, and he was saved, but rather than entering into the ministry, he became a cabinet maker for the next 37 years. He did eventually go into the ministry at age 55, and he faithfully pastored a church for another 21 years in Horsham, Sussex, where he did not miss a Sunday for all in the pulpit for the next 21 years. But in his late 30s, as a cabinet maker, he was walking to work one day, rather than... Uh, as he was walking there, he wrote a chorus to a hymn and then four verses later on during that day, eventually adding two more verses to the song. This hymn we've sung often here at Grace because it's rich, very rich in theological truths. And it underscores where I'd like to study this evening. Edward Mote's original title for the hymn was The Immutable Basis of a Sinner's Hope. Have you all heard that? We've sung it. We'll get back to that hymn later, but for now, will you turn with me in your Bibles to the book of James? If you were in our adult Sunday school class in the last few months, um, I did a lesson on the book of James. Mark let us teach on anything that was dear to our hearts, so I taught on the book of James. Unfortunately, I only got through the very first word of the book, James. So you'll have to bear with me as I take off from that launching point this evening. We've been taught well by Pastor Steve to look at the context of any verse that we study, for therein lies the original authorial intent, and we need to know what that is. We can understand with greater impact if we properly comprehend who the author is, when the book was written, who it was written to, and other narrative items around the writing. We have to paint the scenery around the rest of the picture so you can focus in on what it is we're looking at. In our Sunday school class, we covered very strong evidence that the book of James was written by none other than James, the brother of Jesus. We learn in Mark 6.3 that Jesus had four half-brothers, James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon, with James being the oldest of them. James had rejected Christ during his earthly ministry. But we see Jesus in his resurrected body making his very first appearance to his brother James in 1 Corinthians 15.7. It details us, it for, for us. James is saved sometime between this encounter with Christ himself and Acts 1, verse 13, where we now see James in the, with the other disciples in the upper room praying right after Christ's ascension. So it's right there within that short period of time. It's just days since his salvation. Imagine James putting it all together, recognizing that his brother was truly the Messiah and how the Jews and the Romans killed him, yet he rose from the grave. How would you feel if you just learned that one of your siblings was none other than Jesus Christ himself, the Savior of the world? He knew 
every thought, every deed, every action, every word that you had spoken. James was a changed man, knowing Christ's ultimate price that he had just paid for James's salvation. So let me set the timeline now between Acts 2 and the book of James. If Christ died somewhere right around 30 A.D., then we start to see the Christians persecuted in the next two or three, four years. Saul is one of those persecutors. He comes to Jerusalem and is heavily involved with Stephen's stoning in uh, Acts, which likely occurred around 35 to 37 A.D. Saul then, on the road to Damascus, gets saved maybe 37 to 38 A.D. His name is changed to Paul. He spends three years in the wilderness, comes back to Jerusalem with Barnabas, likely around 41 A.D. Because of the persecution, more and more Jews are now starting to leave Jerusalem. All of this is part of God's plan to spread the gospel. Paul eventually moves on to Antioch, and that's in the late spring of 44. Paul takes off on his first missionary journey. More and more Gentiles are being saved during this time. Paul then returns back to Antioch in 46 and stays until about 49 AD. That's kind of the occurrences what are happening there. Meanwhile, James is one of the leaders now of the church in Jerusalem, in fact, the leader. The Jerusalem Council meets in 49 AD with James, Peter, Paul, Barnabas, Silas, all of them are there. We know James is leading in Jerusalem in Acts 15 because he is the one who writes the letter of the decision of the Jerusalem Council that is sent back in the fall of 49, sent to Antioch. So in Acts 15, James writes the very first recorded letter or formal position of the church. Remember, too, James is a carpenter's son. Because of the book of James not including anything about the content or issues of the Jerusalem Council, it's most likely the book of James was written before that Jerusalem Council, thus dating around 44 to 49 A.D., maybe just 14 to 19 years after Christ's death. Christ's life and death was still fresh news at the time. Many in his congregation had seen Christ themselves. They had seen him alive doing miracles. They might have been part of the crowd yelling to crucify him. They saw him hanging on the cross, and now they believed in his resurrection for their sins. But also many of them were now facing persecution. They were leaving Jerusalem. They were leaving their family, leaving their jobs, leaving their church, leaving their friends, leaving everything. So James, their faithful pastor in Jerusalem, he could intimately vouch for Christ's authenticity, who could share his own guilt of his sins that were exposed by Christ, who humbly bowed his knee to his brother as his Savior. He's the one writing this in verse 1 to the 12 tribes of the dispersion. The formal word dispersion or diaspora has been occurring actually since Babylonian captivity. The word used by James indicates they're scattered. Yes, some by persecution, but others as Roman slaves or by occupations that took them out of Palestine. The point here is that James is writing to those who are scattered. They've been scattered around. And it's likely that many of those who are receiving this letter once were in James's congregation sitting under his teaching in Jerusalem. These people are just one generation down the line from directly being taught by Christ himself, and many of them were taught by Christ at some point. 
with no other New Testament in their hands, no written systematic theology, no R.C. Sproul sermon CDs, no MacArthur commentaries, Al Mohler podcast or Paul Washer sermons, didn't have any of that. They're solely relying on what they had heard and what they had remembered. There is nothing written down at this point. You see, the book of James is actually the very first book of the New Testament written. This is it. This is the very first book. What is it that these precious saints needed to hear? Once the New Testament is put together, then we see it begin with Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. The Gospels are there, and James gets pushed way towards the end of the New Testament. God in his sovereignty knew that what James wrote in this letter is precisely what these new, fresh New Testament saints needed to hear and be reminded of. While Paul goes off on his second missionary journey now, his third missionary journey, James's letter has already been circulating in written form to the Jews living outside of Palestine. It's important for them to hear what's going on in Jerusalem and to be reminded of these critical issues. I think that's why we find the book of James so practical. It's often been called the Proverbs of the New Testament. Think about it. These scattered Jews receiving this letter, they already knew the gospel. They heard it firsthand. The gospel was already ingrained in their understanding. For them, it's now about the faith that they already know. They already were born again believers. So how does this faith live itself out? How is it practically applied? How does faith hold up under trials? These are great questions that are in their minds. For believers just a few decades later, they're going to need to start with the gospel. We're going to see in this book that the knowledge of Christ, his life, his death, his resurrection, must be first understood. Then you can live out the gospel by faith. You can persevere through trials. You can resist temptations only if you have true faith grounded in the gospel of Christ. Let's look this evening at James chapter 1, verses 1 through 8. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion, greetings. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Backing up to verse 1, James doesn't give a list of his credentials. He doesn't point out his lofty position as a leader in the church at Jerusalem. He doesn't say the first person that Christ appeared to after his resurrection. He doesn't rely on his position as Christ's half-brother. They already know who he is. And the truth of the matter, in humility, he calls himself a doulos, a slave, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. In the rest of the book, James does live up to that claim, always promoting the preeminence of Christ. Based on this, it's likely this is how James acted in his everyday life. He presented himself this way in his salvation, in humility. Those reading the letter would immediately have felt comfortable. They would have recognized 
They're at home hearing him write this as if he's talking directly to them. And that phrase of God and the Lord Jesus Christ was really a new phrase. To put those two together on par was completely foreign to the Jewish mind. That's Yahweh you're talking about. This would have been inflammatory to the religious Jewish leaders of this time. This letter would have put James in hot water with those leaders in Jerusalem. As we already stated, he wrote the letter to the 12 tribes in the dispersion. Remember how Pastor Steve has taught us to have a a telescopic view of Scripture sometimes, to look how it applies multiple places? There's an immediate audience, and that's who he's talking to, these Jews that that have been dispersed. Also, there's a distance audience, which is us. We're now getting something for this. And an audience way far in the distance. I believe that holds true for the book of James. It was written to comfort the Jews of James's time. He was writing to them. Certainly applies to us. We can build on our knowledge of the gospel and live by faith through trials. But think about how this will be a comfort to those who find a copy of the book of James during the Great Tribulation. The Jews who finally understand that they murdered their true Messiah. These are truly the 12 tribes of the dispersion, or as James writes it, to the 12 tribes scattered abroad. Even though 10 of the 12 tribes were extremely disobedient, they had apostatized much worse than the other two. All 12 tribes are being addressed. A remnant of the 10 had fled to Jerusalem and were part of the group. God had not forgotten the Abrahamic covenant, and James knew that. Also remember the Council Jerusalem, shortly to occur, it hadn't met yet, but what were the big issues at that time of that council? It was how to deal with the Gentiles. They're getting saved. This issue of circumcision, of meat sacrificed to idols. These were all Jew versus Gentile issues. In Acts 15, starting at verse 9, here's the beginning of the letter taken back to Antioch after the Jerusalem council. The apostles and elders and brethren to the brethren who are of the Gentiles in Antioch and Syria and Cilicia, greetings. See the parallel writing here between the book, the intro to the book of James? Who is writing? Who is written to? Where? And then that next word, a single word sentence, greetings. It's identical to the format of the intro to book of James. So we believe that was written by James. The word greetings, sharin, means rejoice, to be glad. James knows the difficulties many of them are experiencing, and this letter is meant to give them comfort and to strengthen their faith. The last issue of the introduction of the book is found in the few words of verse 2, my brethren, count it all joy, my brethren. James was addressing this book to those who were already in Christ. He uses this term throughout the book, chapter 1, verse 16, verse 19, chapter 2, verse 5, verse 14, chapter 3, verse 1, verse 10, verse 12, chapter 4, verse 11, Chapter 5, verse 7, 9, 10, 12, 19, all throughout the book. My brethren, my brethren. Three of these passages, he uses stronger, my brethren. It's a term of endearment. While the contents of the book of James would have had value to unbelievers, the main audience is addressed to believers here. And remember, when James uses the term brother, that puts the audience on a par with James's earthly brother. As James was their spiritual brother, he also grew up as the brother of Christ. That alone would be encouragement to me, having him call me a brother just like Christ 
was his brother. So what now is the most pressing issues on James's mind as he wants to write as the very first documented uh, writing of the New Testament church? Let's read this. Verse 2. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Building on the foundation they already knew and understood the gospel, he provides advice for dealing with trials. That first word, count, it's a command. It's translated consider, to lead the way, to measure, evaluate. Warren Wearsby aptly wrote, Our values determine our evaluations. If we value comfort more than character, then trials will upset us. If we value the material and physical more than the spiritual, we will not be able to count it all joy. If we live only for the present and forget the future, the trials will make us bitter, not better. If we as Christians cannot find a reason to rejoice in our trials, then we should look at our core values to see if they truly are godly and biblical. Let me repeat that. If as Christians we cannot find a reason to rejoice in our trials, then we should look at our core values to see if they are truly godly and biblical. James is saying here that true believers should lead the way by having joy in trials. Notice he didn't say feel joy. It's not a fake joy. No, it's a true joy driven driven intrinsically. And he gives a formula for doing this. I want to look tonight at five elements of a trial that we should count. Five elements of a trial that we should count. Let's start counting. Verse 3. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Number one, the first element of a trial we should count is steadfastness. If the testing of the faith is real, then it will produce steadfastness. This is also translated endurance or perseverance. It's the idea of staying behind and waiting with persistence. We named our Bible conference after this term. We want our church and our congregation to be known as being steadfast. Hebrews 12, verse 1 through 3 says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses... Let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. This is the endurance that we want. Think of these New Testament saints having been in Jerusalem around the time of Christ, hearing or seeing firsthand what occurred with Christ's death and resurrection, now being scattered and facing trials and persecution. James isn't looking to give them an answer to their problem, to get them out of their trial. No, he's showing them how to achieve God's purposes through the trial. Solving the problem is not the issue. It's not the point. Steadfastness is the goal. Verse 4 brackets the idea well, and let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. There's a result from steadfastness. Rightly applied, it makes you perfect and complete, lacking nothing. He's not talking about sinless perfection here. This is a reference to fully developed. And James verifies this in chapter 3, verse 2, when he says that we all sin in some way. The term perfect is better translated mature. Philippians 3, 13 and 14, Paul says it well. Brothers, I do not consider that I made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining to forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. 
Do you think that Christ exemplified this in his life here on earth? As a young child, as an apprentice in his father's carpentry shop, carpentry shop around the home, James, as his brother, knew this. And that's now what he's wanting for himself and for his readers. He wanted them perfect and complete, lacking nothing in their spiritual walk. I think the term lacking nothing was designed to reflect back on the counting of verse 2. It's like God gave us a certain number of items and he wants us to use and count them and none of them are lacking. They're all there. All are put in place and being used. Thus, we're in perfect sync with what God has designed for us. So the first element of a trial we should look for is steadfastness. Second element to look forward in a trial is found in verse 5. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. We're looking for wisdom. Wisdom would be the second element. So we do the counting, and we come back, and the count's short. We soon find out the element that we're missing. It's wisdom. I like Job's response to his friends and counselors in Job 28, verse uh, 12 to 22. Let me read this for you. But where shall wisdom be found? And where is the place of understanding? Man does not know its worth, and it's not found in the land of the living. The deep says it's not in me. The sea says it's not with me. It cannot be bought for gold, and silver cannot be weighed as its price. It cannot be valued in the gold of Ophir, in precious onyx or sapphire. Gold and glass cannot equal it, nor can it be exchanged for jewels of fine gold. No mention shall be made of coral or of crystal. The price of wisdom is above pearls. The topaz of Ethiopia cannot equal it, nor can it be valued in pure gold. From where then does wisdom come? And where is the place of understanding? It is hidden from the eyes of all living and concealed from the birds of the air. Abaddon and death say, we have heard a rumor of it with our ears. God understands the way to it and he knows its place. For he looks to the end of the earth and sees everything under the heavens. When he gave to the wind its weight and apportioned the waters by measure, when he made a decree for the rain and a way for the lightning of the thunder, then he saw it and declared it. He established it and searched it out. And he said to man, Behold, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom. And to turn away from evil is understanding. For James's readers... They didn't have the New Testament, but they certainly knew their Old Testament. Imagine them reading through Isaiah, discovering its fulfillment in Christ. Imagine them understanding salvation by grace alone, by faith alone. What an amazing thing, through Christ alone. Where they used to have to go to the temple, where a priest was their intermediary, now they can go directly to God himself through prayer. What a profound thought when James writes, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach and it will be given him. That's phenomenal. They've been freed from the trappings of the Jewish leaders who corrupted the temple. They corrupted the true intentions of the holy, of holy scriptures who made the temple into a den of thieves, who used their position as platforms of oppression and created two class, classes of God worshipers. How freeing to know that the ultimate sacrifice of a lamb, the lamb of God, was made that blotted out their transgressions. This same God was now listening directly to them and was willing to give them wisdom that was needed to be sustained in trials. And he would give generously. That's a paradigm shift for them. 
If they're scattered, they're longing to have the fellowship with their friends and the saints and the rest of the people in Jerusalem. They don't have them around them. But they're likely alone in their trials. They're desperate for need of wisdom. The longer you live, the more experiences you're going to have and you can recall upon, which you can draw from for your wisdom. When you recount time and time again God's faithfulness, wisdom will turn into becoming a direct result of your steadfastness. Not knowing the way to go, yet remaining steadfast towards Christ is going to build wisdom and steadfastness. So the second element to look for in a trial is wisdom. We're going to see a digression now, but James shows us additional elements in a trial. Let's pick up at verse 6, chapter 1. Third element found in a trial is doubting. It's doubting. But let, let him ask in faith with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. There are so many ways that we doubt God. We can think that we're undeserving. We can think that God doesn't care because of our insignificance. We can think that God has been unfair to us in all these ways. What are we doing? We're directly doubting the actual character of God, the purposes of God, or the promises of God. I don't know about you, but I find myself doubting God will take care of the small things in life. Maybe because I've been hit over the head so many times on the big things that I've, okay, I get it on the big things. But it's the little things, trusting him. I struggle with those. It's proven daily when I do things contrary to his will, thinking it really doesn't matter. It does matter. All the little things do. But James compares a doubter to a wave of the sea. I don't know if James spent more time in the Sea of Galilee or out in the Mediterranean Sea, but he uses a ton of analogies to nature in this entire book. As a child, I spent a lot of time out at sea. My father had a rather large sailboat, and we often went to the island of Catalina. In fact, um, he raced the boat to Hawaii, which is a a 10-day, 2,500-mile trip. I would often sit on the bow sprit on the very front of the boat, dangling my feet over the water. When you're out in the open sea, all you see is water, as far as you can see, no land for the horizon, as far as it reaches, you can't help but concentrate on the actual waves of the sea. They swell up, and they pass by, and they're gone. Along comes the next one, and the next one. You see wave after wave after wave, all the way to the horizon. The waves become insignificant. It's the journey that's the value, but you have to pass by each wave to get to your ultimate destination. James talks later in chapter 3 about ships being driven by wind and the importance of the rudder to keep it on course. James here is comparing the one who doubts as one of these waves. The concern comes up and it goes away. It's just a small, insignificant part of the journey. But James says the waves themselves are driven and tossed by the wind. So the one who doubts really has no control over themselves. The wind is setting their course. Ephesians 4, verse 14, Paul, in talking about the ways in which the church is to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, he gives a reason for the church to teach doctrinally. So that we may no longer be children 
tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head unto Christ, from whom the whole body joint and held together by every joint with which it is equipped. When each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. This third element of doubting, it's not a good one. We don't want to be found with it, but we're to know the warning signs because it will be purposeless. In fact, we're told, for that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. The digression now continues. Remember the counting on verse 2? Well, the count came in. It was less than perfect, with wisdom lacking. We're to ask for it. But now we see that we don't receive it if we're doubters. This isn't good. Fourth element of a trial is double-mindedness. Verse 8, he is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. John Bunyan, in his book Pilgrim's Progress, had a character named Mr. Facing Both Ways. Mr. Facing Both Ways. It just doesn't work. I can imagine these early Jewish Christians struggling with this. They knew the truth. They had seen Christ, and yet they still wanted to hold on to the world around them. Doesn't it sound like a struggle that we have as well? How do you handle both? Later in chapter 4, James says, Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. The reference is clear that the double-minded, in this point, are not saved at all. They enjoy hanging around the Christians, getting all the perks, feeling like they're part of something. Yet when it comes to trial, they turn to human resources. They act as if God doesn't exist. They know of God's grace, his wisdom, his providence, but they lean on their own understanding. They don't acknowledge Christ, and then their way becomes blurred. And this man is the result of doubting. That's what drives his double-mindedness and makes him unstable in all his ways, just like a wave of the sea tossed by the wind. But look back where it got off track. Our digression above point number one, steadfastness. He didn't have that because he was lacking wisdom. This caused doubt, which showed that he truly was double-minded and possibly even not saved in the first place. You see that digression? That brings us to the fifth element of a trial. And this is the glue between each one of these four points already mentioned. That element is faith, genuine saving faith. Let's go back to verse 2 and look at how this one element of faith brings it all together. Verse 2, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Ah, so the testing and trials is for our faith. Remember, solving the problem is not the point. The trial itself is God's mean of producing steadfastness in us. Reading on, let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So with proper faith, we will not be lacking anything in our trials, nothing. Going on, if you lack wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach and it will be given him. Even if we're lacking in wisdom, which James will be providing plenty more advice in the subject in the rest of the book, we simply need to ask in faith, and he will give it to us generously. But let him ask in faith, verse 6, with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind, for that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. 
there's the faith again. So even if we find that we're not steadfast and we lack wisdom, we can still ask in faith. There's still a means to escape, to rightly follow Christ, so we won't be tossed about like a wave of the sea. He's a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Well, for the double-minded man who's unstable in all his ways, he still has an opportunity as well for redemption again through faith. God is so gracious, isn't he? So by God's grace, even the double-minded man of verse 8 can ask for faith, God will provide it. Or one who doubts in verse 6 can ask faith and he will receive it. Or the one who lacks wisdom in verse 5 will receive it. And the one in trials will see the purpose is to strengthen his faith. God has provided his gracious faith all along the way at any point of our trials, even when salvation is lacking. But we need to back up one step further. Remember again who James is speaking to. There are likely Jews who are saved, who already knew the gospel. Even though the gospel was not yet available in written form, it was the centerpiece of their salvation. The term faith is used 17 times in the book of James. As we reviewed initially with James, who James was and the vantage point of his writing this first book of the New Testament, we can't help but seeing the faith spoken of throughout the entire book is the faith in the gospel. That Jesus Christ came as God. He was born to Mary as a virgin. He was fully God, fully man. He lived a perfect life, never wavering once from his purpose or sinning. He gave up his life willingly on the cross to pay the penalty for my sins, for your sins. He substituted his righteousness for my sinfulness, thus paying a debt I could never pay. But he also rose from the dead. He was God. And with that death, he conquered sin, which opened the way for me and for you to have eternal life with him in heaven. How dare I think I can do anything to assist in that payment of my sins? My righteousness is as filthy rags, as scripture says. That's the gospel. That's what our hope is built upon. That's where our faith lies. James is also clear on how to obtain that faith. No matter where you are in this continuum, we just work through, James gives us the means by which we can have faith. Let me read the passage one more time so we can pick up these verbs throughout the whole passage that kind of tell us where it's going. James, a servant of God and the Lord Jesus Christ to the 12 tribes in the dispersion, greetings. And here's the first verb, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet various trials. This is an active verb. It's a command, measure, evaluate. Literal meaning is count it all joy for your own benefit or your own good. We should never be satisfied with our walk with Christ, but should always be looking to measure up of Christ's perfect example. Continuing, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. That next verb, know, gnosko, from knowledge, their knowledge of the gospel was first or maybe secondhand. Our knowledge 2,000 years ago comes in the form of a book. Infallible word of God. Turn to that knowledge. That is where you will find your value, be steadfast through trials, perfect and complete, lacking nothing. Goes on, if any lack wisdom, let him ask. So there's another verb, ask of God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. When we lack wisdom, we have to ask that he will give it to us. We need to be steadfast and then able to handle the trial. 
but let him ask for six, continuing on, with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea driven with a wind and tossed. Again, that verb ask, that is what will keep us from the doubting part. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He's a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Lastly, for the one who is truly double-minded, who doesn't know Christ, he's also to ask, to ask for forgiveness, to ask for mercy, to ask for Christ, to apply his righteousness to his own sinful deeds. For Edward Moat, he understood the foundation of his salvation when he wrote the words to this hymn, The Mutable Basis of a Sinner's Hope. We've come to know this under the term or the, the uh, hymn, The Solid Rock. Listen as I read the words of this hymn. It's in his profound profession of faith. See if you can identify the five elements of a trial we just found. Steadfastness, wisdom, doubting, double-mindedness, and faith. Edward Mote, The Solid Rock. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. When darkness veils his lovely face, I rest on his unchanging grace. In every high and stormy gale, my anchor holds within the veil. His oath, his covenant, his blood support me in the whelming flood when all around my soul gives way. He then is my hope and stay. When he shall come with trumpet sound, oh, may I then in him be found, dressed in his righteousness alone, faultless to stand before his throne. On Christ, the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. All other ground is sinking sand. As we close, if you have needs for counseling on any of these issues, if you're anywhere on this continuum and you need some prayer for those who need to remain steadfast, for those who need wisdom, for those who are doubting, for those who are double-minded, for those who need faith, after the service, we'll have counselors by the cross here. Love to chat with you wherever you are, however we can help you, assist you, driving you to God's word. Let me close in prayer. Lord, it is with great honor that we look to your word as truth. Sanctify us in truth. Your word is truth, as your word says. Use tonight's message, Lord, to have our hearts understand better who we are and how we are to remain steadfast in trials. When we lack wisdom, I pray that we ask. When we're doubting, I pray that we ask. And for those who are double-minded, who are still following after the world, may you turn those to also ask forgiveness. All of us need faith, Lord, and we thank you for the faith that you do give us through your word, through who you are. In your name, amen.